the tribe is growing. You know what I'm saying? And we wanted to expand like this. This is this is our goal, and this is uh, this is incredible. Excellent. So, how much? What, what are we doing, Bill? How much longer do we start? We got about thirty seconds to go live, but it seems like as soon as it, I see it go live on Facebook, I'll just come back. All right, I'm going to do the we're intro. Live, and we'll, we're, live, we're live right now on Facebook, so uh, we're a minute, maybe 30 seconds early. All right, what's up, everybody? <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Police Off the Cuff After Hours. My name is Mark DeMeo. I'm here with my co-host, my partner in all things law enforcement, Bill Cannon. What's up, Bill? You know, this is the first time we had a father and a son on on different episodes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm very, very excited tonight. You know, I, I was, we were talking uh, a right before we uh, actually went live about, you know, the show and the goals were always to expand and to talk to law enforcement and things about law enforcement all over the country, all over the world. And we got to, uh, we met your father, Steve Cooley. Um, he was a district attorney in um, LA for three terms. And we got to meet Greg Meyer and, uh, you know, I got your father's books here. Well, before I do that, let me just introduce you. Um, he's a multi, our guest tonight is a multi-talent, uh, multi-award winning filmmaker. He made a, uh, a documentary that is amazing called South Bureau Homicide. Um, I saw it on Prime. You can watch it. it I tell you, it's going to take your heart away. Um, it's, it's riveting. Um, what's up, Mike Cooley? How are you? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. And Mike, uh, I knew you went to USC, so your dad paid for your college too, right? Uh, actually, I paid for the grad degree. Nobody's <laughs> gonna get defensive. Every, every cent. There's that's the family a, legacy, but I got that bill. That's an school too. You right? You know what I was thinking about? How interesting it is, you know, because I was a cop, but I was acting for. Um, you know, I got involved in acting in my second year of uh, being a cop. So for 18 years, stand-up comic for 15 of those cop years. And here I am in, in the mix, hanging out with artists all the time. So you, same thing. You, you're an artist. I would imagine you were in film school. Did you go to film school? I did. I, I got into the film thing in college in San Diego. And then when I moved back to L.A., where I was born and raised, I uh, got the bug to go to film school. Got my master's at USC Film School. But you know, your father's uh, yeah. district attorney. My he was the district attorney elected then. Yeah, he was in his first term when I was uh, becoming an adult. <laughs> and, you want to uh, so, into the law business? You know, uh, I am married to an attorney. My sister is an attorney who has just got elected judge. My wow. dad was a DA. My cousin was a a, a DA. <laughs> we have so much law enforcement in my family that I've I've always said this. I have the best free legal advice I ever need, just from all the wrong attorneys who will be the ones who put me in jail. So. <laughs> but then, wasn't that weird, like hanging out with all artists all the time, and your father is a t is the prosecutor, <laughs> the head you know, prosecutor. Uh, I I grew up in a law enforcement family. My dad was a prosecutor growing up uh, for the DA's office, so you know our community was very much law enforcement. He was a reservist. Uh, before I was born in LAPD. So the law enforcement culture and community kind of was present for me. And the whole art thing, I think for me, has been more of a uh, a fun business. And uh, the, I considered law school 
about five minutes. My wife gave me a remedies book and she's like, if you like this, you should go to law school. And I didn't. So I finished film school instead. Dad's a conservative Republican. Too. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a, it's a lonely breed out here in Los Angeles to be that, but, uh, in your you know, business, do you hide that? Um, I don't politicize myself in my business. I think that's fair to say, but people, you know, after they work with me, I do have a real solid reputation. I'm, I believe I do. And, and people don't necessarily think of me as a bleeding heart liberal after we get a chance to collaborate on things. So, you yeah. know, I think my principles are clear in how I act, but I don't wear it on my sleeve. You know, my best friend is in LA and uh, he's been there for like over 20 years. We grew up together in the story of Queens. And yeah, LA's, LA's got everyone, just like New York. It, it, yeah, it's yeah. The, he, the best melting pot. He's a big time Republican out there. And he told me about the party that he threw when Trump won and how he hasn't seen one of those people since. <laughs> well, no, he, he had a full party, but the people, the other people that he invited, he hasn't seen them since. So that's pretty interesting. Did you ever think about being a cop? Um, you know, that's a real good question because the last uh, four or five years, um, you know, the, I think the industry of law enforcement and these agencies, particularly smaller ones, have had recruitment issues and trying to attract, you know, new blood into the profession. And so my skill set being in filmmaking um, and our community kind of knowing a lot of the law enforcement people out here in SoCal or Los Angeles, I ended up working with several different agencies on, on recruitment creative, like creating videos um, so they can go to the market and attract the best kind of next guys, either new recruits or laterals. And I would often, like every time I'd finish one of those projects up, you know, it was Redondo Beach or Hawthorne or Manhattan Beach. I'd tell my wife, I'm like, eh, you know, this looks like a lot of fun. At least I'm, I'm, I'm making it look like a lot of fun. Maybe I should just uh, ditch the camera and get the cop car. Until <laughs> you do it for a while, then it's not that much fun. What's the, uh, yeah, that's, that's what she would say. <laughs> what's the age limit over there? Because I might need uh, a job for, a, for a new hire. Yeah, Gosh, I might I need a job soon. I think, soon. There's a limit. I think they'll take any old part who's a, you know smart and has character. That's me. I'm 53, man. I might need a job soon. They'll they'll subtract the years you've been a stand-up comic from your age. So yeah, you they, might, they might hold that against you, or it might come up in background. Yeah, but you know what? The academy is fun, man. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, whether you like cops or, or you hate them. Even if you hate them, you're, you're curious about what, if, if you could make it through the training, what, what it's like. It's fascinating. You learn a lot of stuff in a short period of time. And uh, it's, it's, it was cool, man. I liked it. I wish you, I could have stayed in the academy for like another 10 more years. It was, and it's neat to see the guys, like multiple generations, kind of have that camaraderie, whether it's LAPD or smaller agencies, you know, that, that camaraderie that you get uh, from the academy and from working frontline law enforcement together. You know what's funny about the NYPD Academy, they tell you right before you get out, they say, you're probably never going to see these people again. And it's true. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, with the exception of maybe I saw out of uh, my, my group of 3,000, maybe I saw 10 people that uh, throughout my 20-year career that I knew from the Academy. Yeah. That's kind of like the departed when, uh, you know, you see them going through the academy for the state police in Massachusetts, like, how did they not run into each other? You know, <laughs> earlier on. Exactly, yeah. So that's right there. It's a small <laughs> world, but it's a big world, too, you know. Let's, um, let's, let's talk about South Bureau Homicide. It's, um, sure. it's been, listen, the movie's riveting. I told, I said, I mentioned that already. It's about um, how the L.A. Homicide Squad got to, um, created a, um, a relationship with the community because of the amount of homicides they had in this small uh, little area there 
And um, it's a beautiful piece. It's riveting. And, um, you know, I had a chance to uh, coordinate the homicide course in for the NYPD Detective Bureau. And we had uh, two ladies there. They used to come every year. And they used to talk. They were called uh, Mothers of Murdered Children. Hmm. And we used to save them for the end of the week because it was a two-week course. And really, by the fourth day, you know, you've seen a gunshot, you've seen a head cut off. It, it, you know, there's a video. The that's all. It's it, it's enough already. But when these two ladies come up and talk and they tell you the whole story about their, how their children were murdered, um, it, there's not a dry eye, eye in the house. And I cried every single time. So when I'm watching your documentary, you little bitch. <laughs> I mean, listen, I'm a, I'm a yeah, I'm a mush man. I cry for everything, man. I cried when when uh, Arnold's burned burned down in Happy Days. Yeah, yeah I did. And so, uh, so your documentary focuses on that. You see a lot of mothers and and dads. The detective talking about how his son was murdered. I mean, it's the whole thing. It's just the first of all. One question: How did you get that footage? How did you get? I've seen docu a million documentaries. Most of them are a tiny bit of footage. And they're like a lot of sit down talk. Your footage is amazing. I've never seen that much footage before. And you're right in the crime scene. How did you get that? Uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, it starts with my co-director, Mark Berman, um, having the idea with Detective Sal La Barbera. The, the idea really started with them. Uh, and ironically, it, it was the idea to maybe do more of a procedural exploration on what homicide detectives do. Um, I think Sal uh, knew pretty early on, and then Mark got wind of that, that the this relationship between the community and the detectives was really the, the thing, the thread we'd pull on. Um, but that relationship got us the sort of bona fides to get into the department. And then, uh, you know, full disclosure, I think when they saw it was just me and Mark, and that I would be able to use the camera and do all the filming uh, and it wouldn't be a big Hollywood production. Um, that plus the sort of relationships I had had, given who I was related to, and you know our sort of um, you know upstanding position in the law enforcement community in LA. I think it really just vouched for us to have access that was completely unfettered. It was totally, Dad? it was totally Dad? unprecedented. Let's Dad, I want to make a movie. I, I didn't even need I to be make a police movie. Dad, no, look, Dad, they were mean to me today. Could you call? Uh, them? No complaints. It was, it was uh, smooth sailing. I, I, you know, the the association certainly helped, but um, honestly, we proved ourselves in the first couple of shoots because we were so small, so nimble, and very reverent to what the police was actually uh, looking to do, and therefore, then all the community people we met. They took to us equally well. I mean, we showed up to do either interviews or we're in scenes. We weren't in the way. We were just there, a fly on the wall, a couple of cameras. I shot the movie with two cameras, two lenses, and a GoPro. Um, so, I mean, yeah, the access we had was because we figured out not to make too much of it and just let it be uh, caught by the camera. Um, you know something, Mike? One of the things that I really liked about it and I totally related to is that when you're in homicide, there's there's a double-edged sword. You can't take things personally, but then again, you're a human being, you know. And some cases, they really get to you, you know. They really do get to you. And detectives, I, I was in Manhattan North Homicide Squad as a sergeant for ten years, you know. And detectives take the cases 
very, very seriously. And of course you take it home with you, you know? Uh, I mean, I, I remember one case in the two, three precinct in Spanish Harlem, a 13 year old kid was stabbed to death. And at that time, my son was 13 years old. And I mm -hmm. remember I, I took that so personally, you know, and um, it, it, it's just amazing. The same thing in your documentary, the detectives, they go there because basically, you know, they're on a mission and the yeah. lieutenant, you interviewed the lieutenant and he said, I don't want someone here who wants to come here to just check a box. I want someone that comes here that really, really wants to be here because they're devoted to be, being a homicide detective. So I, I don't think you can replace the, the equity you gain in relationship by how homicide detectives need to leave it all behind, reach to the next of kin in their barest moments, uh, and not just make it uh, another process that uh, of the wheels of justice trying to turn sort of without feeling. I think the men and women in South Korea homicide, and, and that's one sort of regional component, but it's certainly the busiest in LA of the homicide squads in LAPD. Uh, but they just, they know how to be genuinely vested in the uh, pursuit of finding how it happened, who was responsible, and hopefully adjudicating them. Right. You know, I'm thinking <laughs> you're a kid, right? And uh, you know, your dad's the DA, and you're in full. A 42-year-old kid. I'm thinking back. I'm thinking back when you were making this movie. You know what I'm saying? You know, your father's a prosecutor. You know yeah. that you you are surrounded by cops, but you didn't go down that path. But now you're making this film, and you go right to homicide. And I could I, I can only imagine how much it must have changed you. Oh yeah. To real to be like right there and to realize what was happening. Like I don't even know how you you kept the camera still, because uh, it must have been like it it was life changing. Uh, I mean I probably received the exposure and experience that is not dissimilar from the proximity and the feel of someone in law enforcement having to respond and work, um, you know, uh, murder scene. Sorry, just tried to sign me out of Zoom, but, and so, yeah, I mean, it's completely life-changing. I was six inches away from a person who had been shot to death. Uh, For your first time though. For no, your my, no, exactly, my first time. That, that, the, that proximity to death and seeing how the, the, murder scene had to be worked to sort of start the process of hopefully pursuing justice. And then experiences like we had with Luanda Hawkins and in interviewing her and building the relationship with her to where in the interview, I end up asking her, you know, tell me how it really is with you now. And she's still obviously battling with the loss of her son, which motivates her to help so many other people, but she's personally battling the loss of her son still to this day, 20 odd years later. It's it, you know, the, 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 loss of life, the, the crime is so bad. Yeah. It, murder is so severe. Um, and I think our culture needs to remember how severe murder actually is. Well, the horror of anyone losing a child is, is, uh, is horrendous. And then when you lose them to a murder, it's even worse. But one of the things I, I think the elephant in the room in your documentary too was a lot of times that people that get murdered and I'm not saying they deserve it, but they're, they're playing in a dangerous area. For example, they're dealing drugs or they're a gangbanger or, you know, 
and, and that's how they become victims. Not all the time, but a high percentage of the time, you know. And I'm sure that was true in your documentary, but it doesn't seem like it was said. It wasn't outwardly said. No, I mean, we, we definitely tried to be victims of murder are victims of murder, regardless of um, that some, some may be seen as more um, worthy of their actions and, and redeeming before it happens. But once you're murdered, you're the same kind of victim as anyone else. There was a, so the, there's a scene in the film where there's a double murderer in an alley. And it's pretty obvious that those guys were um, caught in some kind of drug deal gone bad. Got, oh was yeah, that okay. guy shot with the shotgun? No, that I think that they think was actually just like a road rage. So the victims were wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. Um, the the first the first one you see in the film um, gang, was gang related, they believe. The second one of the female caught in the crossfire. Um, I mean, so we we actually in the half dozen scenes we filmed for the actual murder scenes it was quite the spectrum in uh, South LA of circumstance. Um, you know, so yeah, there's there's plenty of stuff that precipitates these these situations, but um, you, you say know, it that, wasn't all on repeat. You know, you say that, and at the same time too, uh, I like what you did in the film, where you put the headlines between the scenes, and it was going to be a line that a detective is going to say, and one of the scene one of the scenes where um, most homicides are, are senseless, something like that, or uh, and I. I had a one-man show. It was um, I still do it. It's called Twenty and Out, and I, I, one of the scenes that I do in the show is uh, uh, the broccoli murder. How somebody was literally murdered. Uh, the whole event started off because the guy, the Chinese guy who, um, in the restaurant, was making the, the food without gloves on, <laughs> and the girl started complaining and called her boyfriend. Next thing you know, somebody's dead, and it's so senseless. A lot of these homicides. And when you try to explain to people, it doesn't really have to be that much involved. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just like stupid. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's the, there's the drive-bys that somebody gets, uh, an innocent bystander gets shot. And then there's the, uh, you know, the person who's supposed to get shot. But I remember so many homicides were just like over nothing, really, over something so so trivial that you can just it doesn't even make sense you know yeah and to imagine the the perpetrators you know running up to that line of terminating another life you know it's hard it you know the the thing i left from the film was thinking a lot more about how the next akin move on but also like the the magnitude of what someone's mind goes through in the heat of the moment to actually end another person's life um well, Mike, you know, like, yeah, in New York City, um, you know, the police dropped homicides to 319 last year, which was the lowest level ever. Mm -hmm. But they're starting to creep up again. And one of the reasons is because people aren't afraid to carry guns on them now. Because now New York City has no anti-crime units, no plainclothes units that target people carrying guns. So the... Bumping into someone in the disc instead of it becoming like cursing or words. Now it's a shooting because the guy's got the gun on. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, and, and when we made the film, um, L.A. County and maybe California as a state was at a low ebb of murders um, compared to heights they'd had in the 90s and late 80s. And 
so crime, violent crime, you know, in a generation, when it reaches generational low, and certain policies in LA County had come into effect, uh, and California as well, like realigning the state prisons with counties and redo it, revisiting sentencing laws and all these things. And there, that was actually a pivotal time because we shot that in 2015 um, to where we've seen, I think, a tick up since then. And now with the shutdown and all the ridiculous politics uh, uh, and decriminalization, like the culture of decriminalization that I think is coming from left of center, far left of center, yeah. um, that's only going to lead to more probably violent crimes such as murder going forward. Absolutely. Our mayor actually said, we emptied the state prisons, we emptied Rikers, but that makes us much safer. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess he wants to fill up cemeteries. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that makes us much safer emptying prisons on Rikers Island. I don't know where his brain, where he got that from. <laughs> yeah, you guys are stuck with the Blasio. <laughs> We're dealing with Garcetti, but you guys are stuck with the Blasio. We got him for 18 more months, I think. But then there's a cast of characters waiting to get elected that are just as bad as him, you know? So what are you working on now? Um, let's see. Uh, last year we released a film. I got a couple of collaborators. Another film called Beers of Joy, which was yeah, like I saw that. I saw that. That that looks pretty cool. I'm gonna watch that after this. That's it's fun. It's a lot lighter, uh, but still, you know, there's some drama and stakes for various characters. But that was a lot of fun. It's kind of a globe-trotting film we got to make uh, in partnership with Anheuser Busch and great characters. And kind of if you guys have ever seen Psalm, it's kind of like the beer version of Psalm. Um, and then, you know, we've got a docu-series coming out probably next year. We're just early in production on, uh, it's actually about, um, kind of the industrial hemp, um, in how, where it's kind of taking off because of CBD and that whole thing. So it's, it's kind of trying to demystify, I think some of the way our culture has, uh, characterized, uh, this plant and all the uses that can come of it because of, um, you know, the past used to be. Sort of politicized and, and made illegal and prohibited which i think was was right but it's interesting that there's all these different kind of new uses for uh, this cannabis plant that are i like out. the old use for it yeah well, plenty of people do especially northern california certain parts of california oregon yeah you know what i was just thinking about but like because you said um it was a little lighter because uh, i'm thinking about your doc uh, the, the south bureau homicide you know there's scenes in there that I'm telling you, if you're listening or watching right now, you have to watch this um, this documentary, right? This, the, the um, like, for example, I, all I keep thinking about is you mentioned, you know, your first time being at a scene and there's brain matter and there's flies already on it and your camera is right on it. I'm like, how did, like, what the hell are you doing? Like, how did you even? Well, like, like coagulated blood. Like, how do you know that blood's going to coagulate into like jelly? I mean, there were very, yeah, very visceral, physical um, details that, you know, even the action movies never slow down enough to kind of give you that sense. And it's also kind of thing that it, it doesn't even go into sort of like gore and horror films. It's just reality is heavy. Right, uh, real, real violence is, is horrendous, right? As compared to violence you see on the screen. And I'll tell you from experience, if there's brain matter in the street, the guy has zero chance of living. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and they, even the sh when you know they would um, they put the sheets over the bodies or sheets over the cars. I mean, I, I think the the ability L.A. is you know obviously pretty flat, so people can kind of congregate around the proximity of a of a murder scene or a crime scene and really witness a lot of that detail. And so I think the 
the need, and it's not exclusive to LAPD, but the need to sort of shroud and, and sort of obscure that uh, gratuitous violence is, is, is necessary. Um, I mean, the, the, there's a scene actually in the film, or, or not in the film, sorry, it's a, I wanted it in the film, but we agreed not to put it in the film because it maybe was superfluous, but uh, you guys would relate to it. And it's um, Captain Tom McMullen retired during the course of um, making the film. So we shot his retirement party at LA Police Academy. And there's actually a clip of his end of watch broadcast on our Facebook page. And, um, you know, he was running the unit over Lieutenant Nolte and Sal during the course of filming. Um, but if there was another privilege beyond kind of getting to see what the men and women do, both with the badge and without the badge, um, it was being at that event and seeing how, um, you know, uh, a servant's 40 year career uh, all over this big department, uh, culminating in working South Korea homicide, it was pretty, pretty amazing. Um, yeah, you know, somebody, and, when you when you tell that story, I thought of a scene in The Wire where McNulty was retiring, and they were all at the bar, and they had the bagpipes, and, and it was it was so sad. Like I, yeah. I was like tearing up while I was watching this on TV. Hey, you pussy! This, I could see. He's calling me a pussy. He's tearing up McNulty. <laughs> You were caught in the emotion of it, being there, and you got yeah, absolutely something yeah. that you should never been able to see, right? Well, the what an end of watch broadcast does is like, in a very unique to police way, condense all the service into a minute, said in the way that over the medium that the department uses. And I had never heard one before, and I've been to several retirements since then, and. Uh, you know, had a fonder appreciation for it. And it's funny you mentioned The Wire because uh, I, I won't claim we were successful at it, but um, I'm a big fan of The Wire. And one of my sort of uh, goals with this project when we were out doing it was, was if I can, when we're done with this film, if I can think that we were able to make a sort of real life LA version of The Wire, obviously on our shoestring, uh, then I would um, think that we succeeded. And I think what everybody gave us in terms of the access and what we were present for got us pretty close because I've always been told pretty that The Wire close. was a very accurate show. Listen, I have this scene in my head from your uh, from the movie, right? And you're, I, you're obviously in the car. You're in, a, you're in a cruiser. And you're heading towards a homicide scene. And usually in 99.9 .9 of the movies, the car will park somewhere and that's just, But your car that you're in drives right in and gets out with with the detectives and is right there to talk to the detectives the first words mm -hmm. scanning the crime scene it's it's like you're you're actually doing it it's, it's just amazing that's why I, i'm so uh, when i was watching it i couldn't believe the footage i'm like this is you might as well this is exactly what it's like but i mean we we had a real privilege of a lot of people getting down and talking to us and giving us a lot of interview material. Um, you know, most of the cops you see doing cop work, they, you know, they gave us interviews and obviously the other uh, community members interviewed too, but the amount of time we got to be in the car and ride alongs or at tactical situations or on the murder scenes or, you know, watching them do process was, was um, it was a ton, there was a ton of it. It was really a treat because, yeah, I mean, there, it's funny, you're driving on a call out. So Sal gets called and we go roll, roll out with him in the car. And it's like, it's, 
it's a real odd thing to get a middle of the night call and yeah. you got to respond to a scene you got to do what they do um it's a there's a quiet but there's this purpose for responding because the magnitude of the loss that's just happening and go and work in a, a, that double murder scene in the alley and you know the guys who first res re respond to it maybe they're they're the uniform guys and they've got to you know establish the the the, the sort of field that the detectives are going to come and kind of work and it's so much goes into it and it, i imagine that the guys who are newly assigned to homicide really are paying a ton of attention to the guys who have been there and done it because there's so much to learn and uh they have to be so sensitive like just their peripheral vision and what they can kind of pick up must be so acute because the littlest thing could be that clue or that bit of evidence to me. Well, you know something, Mike? One of the things that I uh, found out through working in homicide was that one of the most important things was talking to people. That's where you got 95% of your information. Was Because, mm -hmm. like, it's called a victimology when someone dies. You have to study the background of the victim. And in that background, sometimes is the answer to why they got killed. And, of course, now with cell phones and cameras and all this other thing things out there those are electronic aids to investigation but you know if you ask someone like i have a son if i asked uh if someone asked me about my son i won't know everything about him but ask his friend he'll know everything about him, you know so that's how you collect you know the information and use that to vet what actually happens you know and that's and, and that information that's freely given it's on a whole other level of value than the information that's coerced or, you know, given through obligation. And right. so the relationships that the detectives are building as they work in these cases, I mean, they may be in pursuit working one case, but a relationship they have with a, a resident or a citizen may kind of help turn a corner in something else that they're working that may be on a cold case. I mean, it's, there's so many dimensions of what they're having to do. Um, and then the way that, the, you know, the, the organizations are are maintaining propriety over serving the community without sort of just becoming an adjunct law enforcement uh role but still finding and feeding the right information so that the victims and the next to kin you know ultimately receive the justice that we need to, to pursue well it, it seemed like a lot of the theme of your documentary was community policing and getting the community yeah. involved with giving you information and you know that's so important to have detectives that know a lot of people in the community. So when something happens, their phone rings and says, hey, I know who shot so-and-so, you know? And then you still have to build the case even once you got the guy's name. But that kind of goodwill that the detectives build out in the community is, is invaluable. The time at which we made the film, it just happened to kind of sync up with Ferguson. And I think a lot of that theme was born out of the idea that many people are either raised now or are told now to think that there's no such thing as a legitimate relationship between local law enforcement and the community they serve, no matter where it is, if it's a small town or a big town or whatnot, that it's just impossible. And I think that was the narrative of Ferguson to say, look, they, they can't get along with the cops. You know, look what, look what happened, you know, the tragedy of it all. Um, and we found the exact opposite. And I also don't think that's exclusive to homicide detectives, but homicide detectives take the most, the, the, the biggest crime, murder, and go work it exclusively and what they have to do to do it i think earns them so much cred that is necessary for people to understand that the police are people too and they're not right, just right. they're not just doing it for a paycheck or they're not just 
you know, automatons who are, you know, trigger happy and everything that the media wants to say about law enforcement. It, so many myths were dispelled. Not that we carried the myths in, but the myths that we would hear about are so dispelled just by my personal experience of making the film. Sure. Did you um, get a chance to sit in on interrogations as well? You know, we had a, a plan to, and then I think, w if I recall, the kind of logistics of us being present would uh, not, not preserve the investigative yeah, yeah, process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we ultimately were given several interrogation videos um, that were, that didn't make it in the film because they weren't really related to the cases we were uh, present for, those scenes that we visited. Um, so it just didn't end up having a context that suited the film. Um, but there was, we had considered it, and I think we're getting some material in that area. Being around uh, detectives for, how long did it take to make this film? We started making it in about May of 2015. Um, and then we, it's May 15. Oh gosh, no, I'm sorry. May of 2013. Uh, and we wrapped shooting it about the end of that year. Uh, so the Christmas sequence at 77th, which is an annual um, event that they do, that was among the last things we shot, um, other than some pickups, um, cut it the next year, and then it was in the festivals after that. How weird is that, that, you know, you decide to do this documentary on the homicide and it's just, <laughs> you get six, like right then, three months. Well, the that's actually kind of an ironic thing is that I think our expectations were much higher that, uh, okay, we're going to call you guys out. We're going to, you know, put you on a call out list. And, and Mark and uh, myself, uh, my co-director, we're like, Oh, we're going to be, our schedule is going to be full of going to all these murder scenes, or whatever. And in all honesty, they found some legitimate reasons why they didn't call us out to every one of them. Um, so the, they didn't happen too close to one another. And it gave us the time to go see other um, aspects of South Your Homicide or meet other characters and go follow them for a bit, whether that was Lawanda Hawkins or Bishop Smith or Sister Heron. And in some ways that was the blessing in disguise because the movie would have been pretty monotonous if we were you know, too heavy on scenes um, and process and not kind of seeing this counterbalance of you know, gang talk radio uh, where they're, they're maintaining a dialogue that is absolutely trying to run parallel to reducing uh, violent crime, but through its own independent means. So it, it, we, we were joked a lot about it, it during the production that, man, I don't know if they're calling us out to as many things as we'd actually want to show up to, but we were given a lot of other opportunities to shoot other stuff. Well, the detectives always trying to get you to pick up the dinner check. Um, gosh, I know we went out with, with the dinner before a, a ride along with Andy Hudlett, and I'm Pretty sure he treated us. So. Uh, I was thinking yeah. of saying, Mike, come on, pull out that corporate credit card. <laughs> uh, they knew we were low budget. They saw it was just me. <laughs> They're like, oh, this guy, this scruffy, uh, you know, law enforcement. Did you wear a vest? Yeah, yeah. I, I still have the vest. I think it's probably expired in terms of its uh, composites. Give you a gun? No gun. No. <laughs> well, they shouldn't give you a gun. I would have deputized you. I think I got a helmet one morning, but uh, oh really? <laughs> but they, you know, they, they were very, pretty cognizant about where we were uh, shooting some of the tactical situations in the warrant service. I mean, I had a good long lens, but we're right there, and they're well, like, "Okay, stand behind this truck here, and don't do that, and don't go over yeah, there." And you mentioned that, and there's a sequence in the movie where you pull up right in the middle of a homicide, like I mentioned earlier, and um, 
there's a little bit of dialogue that says we have to make sure that before we let the detectives go in there and start doing their interviews, that we're a hundred percent certain that whoever we're looking for the shooter is not here right now. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were on that scene all morning. Um, that was, I mean, I think that murder probably happened at 4am or something, you know, before dawn and the news responded to it. We got called and we got there probably by seven. And I think we stuck around until like 11am uh, until it was, more or less that they had to reduce the tactical situation to where it was safe. Um, it, it's, you know, it's, it was, uh, the, all the dynamics really impressed me. And that's really, I think, something the LAPD, LA sheriffs probably as well, they, given their magnitude and scale of the area they serve, I'm sure NYPD, these big, big departments, they really have to become good at regularly managing murder scenes that have tactical elements yeah absolutely you know, because in, in other communities this, is, this never happens you mentioned the amount of space that you have in la in in new york city it's 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 so condensed i mean you could have a murder scene that is on a block where you have uh you know tens 10 buildings on each side that are 30 stories each you know what i'm saying so like you can't close down the block like no. you gotta, that's your credit you gotta at some point start bringing the crime scene in. But if there's a body in the vestibule, people want to just be able to step over it and go home. You know? yeah. <laughs> Guess yeah. what? You can't go home until- That's, that's New York. <laughs> oh. Oh, you, you, gotta, you, you can't, and they, they fight you sometimes. Like, I live in there. Yeah, but there's a dead guy in your vestibule, you know? <laughs> but they, you I'm know, walking they, they're like, that's right. Yeah, I'm walking here and you know, go about your business. I, I won't disturb. You know, they say they. I won't disturb anything. I'll step over him. Yeah. Don't worry about me. I, I didn't do it. I won't touch anything in the crime scene. I promise. I just want to go home. Yeah. That's, I, that's, you know what I saw that I thought was pretty cool on your LinkedIn. You're a uh, you're a drone pilot. That's correct. Yeah. Is uh, that for shooting or is that because you want to take out one of your competition with the uh, some high explosives from uh, it, it's not militarized yet. Um, <laughs> I, now it became kind of another way to um, branch out as a as a producer and filmmaker to um, take that tool and incorporate it into what I do. And you know, when you get to a certain point, especially four or five years ago, it, if, if you're going to make it more than a hobby, you kind of got to get the regulations, get the license, and all that stuff. And you get some great shots um, with the drone, right? Yeah, and well that. So I think probably riding with their support in LAPD for South Pier Homicide sort of uh, inspired me to want to be able to do that because everything we shot from the air was from LAPD helicopters in that movie. But the perspective you get from the air is second to none. And, and now that the drones became so prolific, uh, it's kind of like the don't leave home without it tool. I, I was doing a project the other day where we were filming the Rose Bowl with my drones. Um, so, you know, there's, you don't, you want to just throw something up and get those pictures because you, you can't do that otherwise without that tool. That's a lot of fun. Can you fly it over the stadium? Uh, it all comes down to the airspace, uh, how the airspace is managed. And so um, Rose Bowl is an example. Uh, don't, you know, everybody watching at home, don't just go out and do this. But yeah. that particular part of the ballet, the airspace isn't controlled. Whereas where they're building the new stadium that the Rams are going to play in, it's right next to LAX. You can't take off the drone there, right, right, no matter what right. you want to do. So my son it really depends has, on. A, has a drone and he flew it over the lighthouse at Montauk Point and got some great shots. But then 
he got chased away. People are like, you're not allowed to do this. <laughs> Too late. Yeah, I got my shots. <laughs> my, my church asked me to take a drone shot like four or five years ago. And then when the morning we did it, then the, the head pastor, I guess, didn't get the memo. And he's like, oh, the Russians are coming. Who's doing that? Who's doing that drone? It was a total freak out. <laughs> so pretty cool i was in a, the commercial i had over here for optimum um they used the drone for the uh pool scene all these guys are uh destroying my house and they're throwing all the furniture in the pool but i remember when we were shooting it uh, you know like it was so cool like they're doing all the acting over here you got cameras but the drone is the one that the shot that they used the most and that was like from every a bird's eye view it was great it's a was great, shot, great was tool. shot of you in the speedo from above no, I didn't. I didn't. Have, I was. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? One of the uh, Mike. One of the biggest things in, in I think in the documentary were the mothers that lost their kids, and I've been to like meetings like that where they actually point fingers at the detectives, like you didn't solve this kid, like, and you know they get really pissed at you, and you can be working as hard as you possibly can, you know. I don't know if people realize not every homicide is solved. You know, yeah, right? you showed that, Mike. In the movie, there's a scene there where it's a group of people that the unsolved homicides. Mm -hmm. And those are that the lady that you, you mentioned earlier, her son, that's that's a that homicide's still unsolved. It is. So that's yeah, an interesting that's dynamic. You know, I mean the, the detectives, you know, they're working their ass off, but you know, unfortunately, they don't solve every case. And you, in the film that you mentioned, they don't want to call it cold case anymore. Right. And the clearance rates, I think, were 70, 80 percent or something in South Bureau homicide when I was there. And you, you think back, you're like, that's that's pretty impressive stats. But then there is that there's that remainder that um, it, I don't know if it's going to take more time or someone's going to have to come out of the woodwork or whatever. And so there's several detectives, I think it was like four detectives in uh, South Bureau Homicide were on the unsolved uh, team, just working the unsolved cases. Uh, well, there's no statute of limitations for homicide, you know? No. But the, the other thing that happens always at the end of the year, someone will die of a gunshot wound that happened 15 years ago, and that counts as a murder for that year. And at least the NYPD was like, oh no, we don't want this, Lord, what do you mean, you know? And the guy it's got shot, and they, the doctor will say, the infection from the bullet, if he was never shot, he would have never died, you know, 15 wow. years later. So they would catch a murder, and the case was all adjudicated already, but it was a shooting and not a murder, you know. Wow, I've never heard of that. That's the year homicides, you know, they'd be freaking out. <laughs> yeah, the, the, that scene you mentioned about the, the community with, I think it was a Southern California ceasefire committee uh, meeting we were at. Um, that was pretty powerful uh, because there were definitely the people who were the firsthand experience of loss who were appreciative of the dialogue that they could have on that evening. Because, you know, there would regularly be one or two guys from South Bureau there, but I think they had several more on that night. And so the, the appreciation for their presence and then also, you know, the, the comment, one of the comments in the film with one uh, lady off screen says, you know, it's kind of the, the the theme that I think we're finding today. Like they don't live here and they don't know us. They don't care about us. What's the pro? What, what's the point? It, it you know that kind of jaded mentality. And 
Um, I don't necessarily harp on that for individual who said it, but that's kind of the culture we're fighting today is that there's this jaded, like, how could you relate to us? You know, you, you don't look like us. It's a pigmentation difference. It's a, you know, you can never understand. And the, 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 the corrosive nature of those, um, you know, differences of point of view is really going to make the parents that take their kids to the protest with fuck the police uh, signs. Yeah. Little, little yeah. kids, little kids, five years old, fuck the police. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm at risk of probably divulging a little too much of what I've witnessed recently and I'm not stoked on. And uh, yeah, I don't think it's appropriate to um, indoctrinate, you know, your children into uh, what might otherwise be objectively considered a Marxist uh, movement. Um, you know, so a lot of people are getting are feeling the feels and getting uh, sewn into, uh, I think, a legitimate emotional response for the tragedy of, say, George Floyd. But uh, let's not confuse that with um, the impulses that would otherwise tear apart our country. I was getting on an elevator once uh, uh, with my partner. We were waiting for the elevator, and uh, a lady comes with her kid. And, you know, I love kids, so I'm like, hey, what's up, buddy? And the mother takes her child and puts it behind the leg like uh, behind their leg like that. So she, and not, meanwhile, I wasn't playing, you know, I wasn't playing clothes, but she could still tell I was a cop. And I was just like, wow, man. <laughs> you were in that shirt? No, <laughs> a ver some version of it. Did you pull out your, your sign, <laughs> fuck the community? <laughs> no, it's funny. I was doing a project for Hawthorne PD, which is another um, uh, department in LA County. Yeah, very uh, well, well-run uh, organization. And, we had to put a GoPro on the back of a motor officer's bike and, you know, they're running out just getting that kind of action angle. But it just so happened that there's a kid uh, walking, you know, like a four year old kid with their mom walking on the sidewalk and he pulls over and the kid has this natural instinct to want to get a high five from the cop. And that moment's in the cut, we did it. And it's, those are the real impulses that law enforcement needs to be right. reminded about that. That's the service. That's the point of the service is that, uh, that's keeping the community safe and, and being, I think, a positive role model for uh, the community and not just being branded as uh, all the things that the media would say. You know, it, it's amazing how fast, probably in the last year or so, how fast this hate the police movement has gained traction. You know, in New York City, it started with them pouring a bucket of water on a uniformed cop. And it's just descended into even much worse things happening all the time. And I've never seen it this bad in my lifetime. Uh, this I, whole yeah, when we were working on the film, it was interesting because we talked about community policing. And I think LAPD through the experience of the Rodney King um, incident and the riots that followed, got to examine how they had been policing this department and make the change. And it was, you know, it's like turning the Titanic really. I mean, it took probably a decade for them to fully implement a community policing strategy Right. That was different from a more, um, you know, adversarial, fully adversarial approach they might have had in the '80s, and so regionally, I almost think that LAPD had to experience that, um, you know, that season of discontent following Rodney King, implement community policing, and now that's a big part of why I think in 2013 violent crime was really low. Law right. enforcement was playing their part in not just being overly militaristic and yet all it's like all the attaboys and all the 
all the credibility built with the community through the community model, uh, it gets thrown out the window because of, you know, uh, cultural apathy and political motivations. And you know, it's, it's really tragic. And because they, it's, you know, what LAPD you know, had kind of accomplished, it's getting thrown out the window. And it's, it's yeah, the same thing with everyone. You, know, you need both parts. You need the community policing part and you need the warriors too. You need the anti-crime, yes. the real crime fighters. And one of the parts of, that the anti-police movement is doing is they're trying to take the tools away from the police to fight crime. For example, they're trying to take away uh, or stop question and frisk, which became unpopular in New York City because it was over it was overused. You know, they want to take away gang databases, which is how you track gangs and keep track of them because they commit most of the violence in communities. Facial recognition tools. Google, that left-wing company, wanted to take away facial recognition. Yeah, well, they are. They are a left-wing company. Yeah, they are. Yeah. You know, their their employees object to them helping the police, and the and the CEO bends over to, to you know backwards to uh, acquiesce to the wishes of these leftists. You know, you work for this company. You don't run it. That's what they should tell them, but they don't. You know, right. they just called upon that in the meeting with the bar by. Uh, well, by a senator saying, you know, you guys are doing work for China's military, but you refuse to do it for the U.S.'s military. And the CEO did this like tap dance. Oh, no, we don't do that. No, no, you know. This, but this I read an article the other day that uh, as Minneapolis schools terminated their uh, contracts with the police department, the next day they advertised for armed security guards for the schools. Yeah. Advertising policing. I got it. Listen. That's like I got it. Well, okay. you, you, want, you need the warriors too. I mean, they're admitting it. We still need the warriors. Yes, you do. And the warriors If you want my theory on what's going to happen with uh, uh, policing in the future, especially in big cities, it's privatized policing. That's where we're going. But that's a whole theory that I, it's very intricate. But what I wanted to tell you was imagine being this kid, right? This is a kid who wants to make a difference. He's going to join the NYPD because he's going to be the community guy, he's a native New Yorker or she's a native New Yorker. And, um, you know, they do it, man. They go through the academy. They uh, they do a great job. They get to their precinct. They're doing their um, impact or whatever they are. And, and uh, but they're making a difference in the community where they wind up uh, getting into a precinct and then they win cop of the month, three months in a row. And then they go to these uh, protests and they're standing side by side because, you know, they wanted to make a difference. You know what I'm saying? They're not like all these other cops. Right. And they're standing side by side and they, all of a sudden you get hit in the head with a brick. Three nights in a row. And you realize at some point, you know what? This is all I got. These are my brothers and sisters in blue. This person right here, they never asked me, oh, did you win cop of the month? Are you the guy that wanted to make a difference? No, you're wearing a uniform. You're on their side. And that's that's what happens. That's where you get the us against them mentality, because mm -hmm. all that it's all you know. I don't want to say it's bullshit, but the reality is, you know, in a perfect time, all that stuff works. But when you're in a time like this, where it's uh, it doesn't matter. It's about anarchy right now. It's about destroying yeah. what we have to put something else in place. And this is what we're doing. You know, so where do you start off with distrust of the police? That's the that's the the ground floor. I, I didn't make Listen, this up. The, the tactics of bigotry uh, are not what needs to be utilized to end bigotry. 
we changed our, we've been changing our culture ever since the country was founded because uh, cultures change and cultures can improve uh, but to you know paint all law enforcement as bad and therefore needs to be defunded and disbanded is the, is basically the same mentality to say that any person with a particular association uh, you know that, that they, especially one that they can't control like race which doesn't really exist we're all one race uh, it, it's it's the same kind of bigotry it's just with a different prism uh, so we can't we really can't the moral society just can't let that happen well, you know, Mike, they had the other day, they had a, a unit in the NYPD, uh, Manhattan Warrants, and they spotted a guy on the street that was wanted for five incidences of damaging cameras. It was a group, oh, yeah, spraying, yeah. spraying paint on the cameras. So he, he was getting arrested. The fact that he was protesting had nothing to do with it. He's, <laughs> he's, a, he's a wanted perk. So they got out and they locked him up and then they rock started. And you know, three politicians, including the governor, went against the police. Cuomo, de Blasio, and this other clown, Corey Johnson, who's the Speaker of the House, they all went against the police. That was a textbook, beautiful arrest. And the press called it a kidnapping. No, <laughs> kidnapping is an you... unlawful abduction. This was a lawful arrest. Had nothing to do with kidnapping. But these jackasses from the press that, you know, they use these powerful words like kidnapping. No, it wasn't a kidnapping. Kidnapping is unlawful. This was a lawful arrest of a perpetrator, not no. a protester. You no. don't have to stand in the middle of town square and go, okay, uh, this person is under arrest. Right. In your body, that person has an arrest warrant. We know who that person is. You run out, you snatch him. I've done it. I've yeah. do I took this dude one day. He was in the middle of... Um, uh, you know, in New York City, they, they take the uh, the thing off the fire hydrants. And if you don't feel like going to the pool in the summer, you take a can and you put it on the fire and then, you you know, everybody runs through the fire hydrant. This dude was in charge of, <laughs> he was the point man. He was, the, and we saw him, he, uh, he raped this girl. She was in the other van. She pointed him out. She goes, that's him. We, we, we pulled up right there. We ran out. I, we threw him in the van, we closed the door, took off. One second, this guy was there being the life of the party and this, everybody was looking like where the fuck did he go <laughs> like, what happened to that guy that's a kidnapping <laughs> that's an abduction that is that's what you call perfect uh, a perfect strategy but unfortunately you know when i watch that i you know i think to myself maybe it could have been done a little bit better you had him right there but maybe you could have just a, a little tactically slightly better um you know because the the grabbing of the thing has to be a little uh quicker and just real quick <laughs> more for improving tactics always has to be done but it's for the improvement of the institution and those who are in it it's not like every tom dick and harry suddenly gets to be the most the most important monday morning quarterback when how they would do it differently when so many people have no idea of the magnitude of how difficult it is to be a police officer in the first place yeah i mean obviously it's monday morning quarterback and they you know what you see the body you got to take it uh, it there's like a thing there it might look good, and then all of a sudden, you see what happened after the fact. They came from everywhere, but um, well, it's like you guys said, it's being it's being made now where it's almost impossible to do the job. Yeah, I mean, even the New York Times they called it an abduction. First of all, the writer was probably a graduate of Columbia University Journalism School, which is practically Mao Zedong University. You know, or they, or they probably just get their coffee at the Starbucks that's on the Columbia campus. <laughs> they're putting together that 
that incident along with the one, um, I think it was in Seattle when they were uh, using the unmarked vans and they were, uh, the oh, uh, yeah. security oh, was dressed in camouflage, right. which uh, the, the military said they shouldn't be wearing camouflage. Um, it's so it, the whole thing is crazy, but they were doing kind of sort of the same thing, just grabbing a particular person out of the group uh, that they had a, an arrest warrant for. And I, I listen, there doesn't have to be a whole town square. I'm not, I don't have to announce it. You got an arrest warrant, you're gonna go. And you That's don't it. have to explain it to someone on the street. No, no. If we're not holding court here. He's well, right now, court. listen, right now we don't have to, but in the future you might, because that's okay. what they're trying to do. This is the ACLU attorney and this is, you know. <laughs> do you ever see, remember Django? Remember yeah. Django when, when he shoots the guy and then he goes in the bar and they have the drink together and he says, call the guy. That's what you're going to have to do. He says, listen, you're going to have to go through three steps before you take the body out of there. Well, the guy that Manhattan warrants arrested, he was homeless. So what, were they going to call him and say, hey, surrender? He, he, did, he lived on the street. So how, you know, I mean, and these people, I mean, the, the fact that three politicians commented on it, all Democrats is disgraceful. And one of them was the mayor. And the no, other well, one was the right now, you take it to court. You guys say that we are to a blue flu. Nah, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think, you know, they, a thousand, probably a thousand people retired because they could and they know that people that may love the job, but they're like, I'm not taking these chances anymore. Yeah, you know what? I think this, I think right now what happened probably, I had a moment where I thought of, uh, at this point, you want to win it. You know what I'm saying? We're every fucking night anyway. Fuck it. Let's win it. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. We're not going to give up. Fuck them. And that's what I hope the attitude is at this point right now. Because you know what? And, and I told, I mentioned this on an earlier podcast. You take that person coming out of the academy is a little soft. You know what I'm saying? Because I, I've been to, I go to the academy every week. I work there. I do an acting gig there. And uh, I see these kids, man. <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> But you know what? You take that kid, right? And uh, he's coming out of the academy. He's a little soft, right? That person, right? And now you put him out there. On the front line, he's getting hit with stuff. He's getting screamed at every day. Your mother's a whore, this, that, and the other. I want your children to die. And the first night, he might be defeated. The second night, he comes back. He's a little. Third night, he's a little. Fourth night, he's a little. And by the fifth night, he's like, what? What? What the fuck? What are we doing? That's a different person now. He's got to deal with this shit. You know, you toughen them up. And now you got a whole different breed of police officers right now. The, the young guys that came out of the academy, that's not the same person anymore. When you got to go home after that abuse every single night and you keep coming back, it's not the same person anymore. These are tough kids right now. Well, I appreciate that perspective of the sharpening of what they're going through because, you know, you, you would otherwise imagine it's demoralizing and can be nothing else. But there is that sharpening aspect of what, you know, it's not, if it's their boot camp for life for this particular job, and they go through and they come out stronger, then I guess it's worth it. Uh, 10 years from now, that cop right now that sat through this whole shit, the people that come on the job are going to look at them like, oh, wow, you worked you worked the fucking uh, the Floyd protest? That's the way they're going to look at them because they know they went through the shit. Mm -hmm. But you know, Mike, there's a, there's a law that was passed by the city council and signed by the mayor called the diaphragm law. And that law is intolerable. They cannot do their job with that law in effect, that has to be reversed. And basically what it is, a cop can't put his knee on a perpetrator's back to get him handcuffed. 
or his body weight or any way compress his diaphragm. And if they do, they can be arrested for an misdemeanor. That law has to, has to be changed. They cannot do their job with that law in effect. And the chief on the NYPD, Monaghan, said, oh, I spoke to the DAs. They're not going to prosecute. And he took a lot of shit. I did that. <laughs> oh, that, yeah. That, you won't believe the DAs. Once you get a highly politicized case, they will all prosecute. Believe me. You know? That was cool about your dad because, uh, you know, usually, like, especially now, the prosecutors that we're used to, you know, it was in the, he shit on all of them, man. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, uh, there was, um, he used to say a lot of good things when he was in the office, like the, was that, I don't know if it was the, uh, not the Phil Spector case, but one of the other cases. And, you know, he was on the news and like, oh, you called the jury stupid. It's like, yeah. And they're like, you want to take that back? He's like, no, they're stupid. <laughs> I think they made a stupid decision. What do you want from me? <laughs> it's like, there's a bluntness and clarity that I think many, many people in political office are terrified of, of exhibiting. And it's really too bad because it just shows that they're a lot of times empty suits. And I think the thing that my dad accomplished in office in 12 years was that he didn't change, he, the job changed, and he moved to the top of the ladder, but he didn't change. And he brought all the character and accomplishments that he had accrued in 30 plus years of being an actual prosecutor to the top of the largest uh, you know, prosecutor office in the country. And that the culture of the office during his time was really successful because people believed in the mission. But your dad probably couldn't be elected today. No, that's not true. He pulled us, you know, he, in my that opinion, he pulled a Jerry Seinfeld. He, he went out on top at the right time, um, has maintained an incredible reputation because of what he accomplished. But I don't think the um, times would have been as kind to him. I mean, his replacement has endured such unfair criticism. Um, she is everything the woke society says we need, and they are consuming her. Right. She is... And that's you know, the thing. She checks every box, and she is a, a, the most dedicated public servant in office right now in LA County. And they want to spit her out because she's not, you know, a radical. And it's crazy. So, yeah, if he had still been in office, he would have been public enemy number one. If he well, had been elected, 20, general, 20, he, would have been he, lost, he lost to Kamala Harris, right? In 2012? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that was, uh, I think it was a blessing in disguise for him personally because he would have been the only statewide Republican in California in 2010. So he would have been a uh, a target, and he would have been a uh, a ceremonial hood ornament for a dead party, which is the Republicans in California. And it's interesting because <laughs> we go when you go back and we analyze it's like all the talk of like ballot harvesting and all these uh, elections changing after election day, you know, and you're in the lead and then you lose the lead. Like his race seems to be among the first where that dynamic of that tilting uh, became kind of the norm here in California, where. Uh, a reasonable Republican loses to, uh, uh, you know, a radical Democrat by the thinnest of margins right. after the fact. And, you know, it's not worth litigating now. Uh, I, I'm glad he's not, uh, I'm glad he was able to retire at, in, after finishing his term in 2012. And he's gone on and, you know, now he's defending very worthy people like David Daleiden in his defense against the state. So, you know, he's doing books doing right. He's yeah, and the books. Books. he's writing the books. Yeah, one, you know, so. yeah, I got both. I got both of them. <laughs> he, he, my, my dad is blue through and through. That's for yeah, sure. He is, man. Great, great guy. guy. Great guy. Great guy. You know, it's un, it's unbelievable what I think a lot of these democratic cities they want to change policing 
but the violence in all the democratically run cities is out of control. And New York is heading that way right now, too. And it's yeah. it, like it pains us because we were on the job. I came on in 1985. I retired in 2011. We were on the job with the biggest drop in crime in, in New York City history. It went down 70 percent in 30 years. It's starting to go back the other way. And it really is painful to watch. You know, yeah. it, it's that's hard. the same dynamics in L.A. You know, I, born and raised in Los Angeles. Some most people aren't born and raised in Los Angeles. A lot of people just come here. I have no desire to want to leave LA, but the the way the city and culture is changing to, you know, throw common sense and reasonable morals out the window is pretty appalling. <laughs> and you start looking at where else, where in the country do they still hold on you to some- conversation every week. Where would you go? Well, Joe Rogan is moving to Texas. It's because he's at it. I got, Mike, Mike, so does Sweden because they have herd immunity. I, I'll give you. I'll give you. This is the question we're going to close out on. All right. Where would you go? Because yeah, I'm going to give you some time to think about it. Do I have to? Do I spend my own money, or do I get to win the lottery first? What'd you say? Do I have to spend my own money, or do I uh, have to win you the lottery? Have to spend your own money, but it's in the United States. Uh, it would. It would be someplace that has winters, and it probably would be uh, Central North. <laughs> But a place honestly, that has lenient drone rules, lean, lean, yeah, nice drone rules and a, a little bit of space. But where we live in LA, I love my I love my neighborhood. My my part of LA, San Pedro, is amazing. The community is great. So I like like you're saying, why stay on the job? To, you want to win the war? You want to win the culture war? So I'm gonna I'm gonna stay planted here because I'd love for this place to continue on to being a nice place to live and you know have families raise kids and hopefully be productive i mean so yeah i'm in new york on yet <laughs> and i'm not going to new york <laughs> no offense don't come they're bailing out in droves <laughs> bailing out in droves florida's becoming new york as everyone's going to florida yeah they're florida, gonna wait florida's out the covid though they're getting hit hard with the covid over there well, once that's over with you know you know Everybody's everybody's so careful. You know what's true with the COVID because some of the tests that they're saying they're falsifying the tests to make their numbers look bigger. Well, they said it's going to be over on November fourth. Yeah, COVID will be gone November fourth. <laughs> I'll be like, what, what? What was that virus called again? We'll the see. <laughs> COVID, what, 1920? What was it? COVID, COVID may go away, but a lot of the levers they've started to pull in our two states are going to be ones they continue to pull for other reasons. And that's what's yeah. going to happen. Well, you know, Trump wins again, though. That's a, that's a, you got to have a lot of uh, endurance for that, though. That's going to be a drag. <laughs> Once we get past the. <laughs> How about all those Hollywood people that said they're going to move to Canada? They, they, threatened they were saying. They were saying that when Bush, uh, Bush the second was getting reelected in 2004. When you know, when I worked in Hollywood, I was like, I'm going to Canada in 2005. It's like, okay, well, well they didn't. <laughs> people will help De Niro go there, you know. <laughs> well, listen, uh, Mike, I just I want to thank you for uh, taking part in this, man. You you were uh, you were great. Um, the movie is great. South Bureau Homicide. I recommend it to all our followers. Check it out. I watched it on. Uh, Prime, and yeah, uh, if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch South Bureau Homicide for free. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, all our fans out there, 
I know you don't want to spend the dime. So go on Amazon Prime. You can watch it for free. That's the way I like to watch my stuff. Yeah, I love Prime. And <laughs> Cops say if it's free, it's for me. <laughs> so, uh, so you, do you want to plug anything, Mike? Uh, no, I appreciate it. I mean, SouthCoreHomicide.com is where the movie is. Uh, some people think that's actually the police department. So I get phone calls pe with people looking for the police and they call me and <laughs> learn about the film. Uh, but no, that's all I need to plug. I mean, I really appreciate you guys bringing me on to talk about it. That film changed my life. And I think it, it was an important change for me to see the seriousness of the work, you know, your colleagues do. So thanks for letting me talk about it. With Mike, you if you want to do another documentary on what's going to be the most popular law enforcement pod podcast in the nation, you may you may consider police off the cuff after I, I like I like when you guys talked about the you did the first three episodes in the car and drove around a bit. I'd be that I'd be fun, yeah. resurrecting that they did. I'll do that. Take to the first one. It's a, it's it's pretty it's uh they did a nice job with it. Yeah. Um. So what what can I say? I, I you know I got dressed up for you. I did my hair. Appreciate it. Part. What the hell, man? You want somebody with a heavy New York accent that knows how to act really good? <laughs> Do you know that I was on Law and Order SVU and FBI's Most Wanted in one year? That's nice. And then I got hit with the COVID. My whole career is destroyed. <laughs> well, SVU is a that's a pretty big gig to be on SVU. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what they say in New York? They say if you haven't been on uh, Law and Order, you, you're not an actor. <laughs> you know, I'm over here, like acting in every other TV show except for that freaking show. When I finally got it, and it was a tiny part, I didn't care. Yeah, Law, Law & Order LA only lasted like one season, so we can't say that about the Law & Order franchise out west. <laughs> you know what, though? I watched, um, uh, I looked at a list of the show, the cancellation and the renewals, because I was just curious to see how many cop shows are going to get canceled. And a lot of them stayed. All NCIC stayed, and all these, uh, all the, they all, the only one that's gone is Cops. So that's good. And live PD, live PD. Yeah, got canceled. I heard A and E lost fifty percent. A and E lost half their viewers because they canceled live PD. So way to go, good well, business why, decision. Why did these idiots do it? Why did they bow to the mob? It's ridiculous. You know what though? Hey, no, we're not canceling. Fuck you. We're, we're keeping it going. It, it, right? You know what they're waiting though? In, in two, I'm, I'm sure because I I did uh, the live PD the podcast though. I'm sure they already got word. Listen, give it, when this dies down, we'll come back. Right, right. Because uh, they just got to wait till the heat cools off. I think we should come back as police off the cuff driving around in the car again. Except well, I don't have my Honda CRV anymore. So if I'm you're ever in New York City and you want to hang out, man, let us know. I love that. Yeah, I'll definitely look you guys up. You could treat us for dinner. I'll be glad to. I'll be paying it forward from what I got from LA. Media House credit card. We'll take care. We still know a couple of places that are on the arm. Yeah, OTA. Did, they, is that, did they say that in L.A.? It's O.T.A.? Did no, I haven't heard that, but I'll start using it. That means, on the arm. That means it's free. O.T.A. It's an old cop expression. You know? All right. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks Thank for coming. Guys. Appreciate Thank you. Appreciate the best. Take care. Thanks, man. Bye.